This is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally or spiritually gnaw on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. And I'm your host, Nate Vineo. This episode is Surviving and Thriving Amid the Wreckage. This episode is going to fly in the face of and offend two ideologies today. First, the fairness doctrine, that is to say that simplistic idea that if I get a cookie or a bonus or a new car, everyone else should too. Ironically, this fairness doesn't seem to apply to getting diabetes or speeding tickets or getting audited by the IRS, but whatever. The second, it may offend those color commentators who sit on the sidelines of the game and make a living for themselves, or at least stroke their own self-esteem by bemoaning the errors of the players on the field and how they should have done things better. These armchair judges have nothing personally invested in the game, but promote themselves as having a calling from God Almighty to critique the motives and actions of everyone on the field. Some would call these voices the voices of social justice. So if this is you, feel free to put on your mental steel-toed boots and enjoy, because this episode is going to highlight some perceived unfair dealings in David's life and how God continues to work in his life after he has hurt so many people. Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, The Intern, Monica Lewinsky. First of all, let me say that I have no knowledge of the Clinton family or their personal, business, or political dealings. I simply use these well-documented facts to make an opening illustration for today's episode. Do you remember the media melee? The two-term president who brought the whole practice of impeaching the president to a normal place in presidential politics. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the mayhem, but the long and the short of the matter was that he was impeached. Not because of the sin with a woman not his wife in the White House, but because he lied about it under oath. The behavior and dynamic is similar to that of David, except for their character. David owned it. Bill, on the other hand, denied it vehemently. And Bill didn't kill anyone, that we know of for certain at this point at least. And again, I would assert that I have no personal knowledge of any of this kind of impropriety by then-President Clinton. Hence, we have to conclude at this point that he does not share the title of murderer with David, although the other offenses are clearly in play. I have a friend who's a 30-year veteran of the Alcoholics Anonymous program. And in a conversation with him, one of the 12 steps dealing with making amends came up. Occasionally, when members of the program have a particularly destructive relationship, there are those with whom they cannot make amends. The potential reasons are many, but he referred to this as wreckage, the damage of sin that leaves relationships permanently damaged. Last episode, we looked at David and the wreckage he created because of his murder of Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba, which resulted in a stout punishment. While God forgave David of his sin due to David's repentant response when confronted, there was still a price to be paid. And I should mention that I think I still have to do another episode on David as a father. I know that this week was supposed to deal with David's relationship with his kids, but I'm going to have to punt another week to wrap up this issue with the sins of the father. 
A quick and shallow review of the curse and consequences would be to say that God says that the S-word, I mean the sword, would never depart from his house. That plays out as three of his four sons are killed by family members. The baby dies, and Absalom's rebellion is predicted, all of which result in a very unstable home for his harem and his kids. And this conflict, this vying for position amongst his kids and disrespecting the king, happens right up until his death. The story is fraught with all kinds of questions. How can God forgive but dole out consequences, curses, and correction at the same time? What is the difference of all three? Does God violate the doctrine of free will with these curses, with the prophecy of how Absalom would rebel? How was David blessed in the first place when he was blatantly living in violation of Deuteronomy 17? I mentioned that reference last week, and I hope you all take the time to read up on it. I'm sure there are more questions to address, and all of these are probably multi-episode topics in and of themselves, but today I want to address the more practical question of, how did David not only survive the disaster he created, but how did he thrive amid the wreckage he created? And you may ask, hey, Vinio, how do you come up with this? How do you come up with this idea that he thrived? When the better part of Second Samuel, that is to say, after the curse in chapter 12, is mostly about conflict. Well, I had a professor in college who taught a hermeneutics class, which is the process of biblical interpretation. And he would mention, as well as reminding us in other classes as well, that when you get to a part in Scripture that doesn't make sense or seems difficult to interpret or seems contradictory, keep reading. Most of the time, Scripture will interpret itself. The actual phrase he used was, Scripture interprets Scripture. And answers to your question usually show up a few verses or chapters later. In this case, you have to read a little bit between the lines, study the order of events in the book, and then, instead of several chapters later, several books later, you see that God was clearly with David in this time. And not just with him, but using him for eternal purposes amid the curse or the consequence or the correction. And I should note here that in case you're wondering why I'm using these three elements together, it's simply because all three are happening at the same time. They're hard to separate, and they overlap too. And again, this would be one of those multi-episode topics to define these terms. But for now, I'm just going to lump them together because whatever the correct term at any given point may be, it's still painful for David and his family. Shoot. Whatever it is, it's still painful for us too. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the question of differentiating between the curse and the consequence and the correction when our response to each should be the same. When you read through the Psalms, you begin to see that David wrote many of these Psalms that have ministered to millions up to today. And he wrote them during the time of his curse or correction, especially Psalm 51, which famously highlights his contrite and repentant heart. And this is where we get that old song that maybe some of you remember, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. That's Psalm 51, verses 10 
through 12. And you're welcome, by the way, that I didn't sing that to you on the podcast. You will not find me singing in any way, shape, or form on this podcast, so you can rest at ease on that matter. Anyhow, take some time this week to read Psalm 51 in its entirety. It's extremely rich. And while 51 describes his repentant heart and his plea for restoration, when you get to Psalm 91, you see the confidence with which he writes, quote, The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. End quote. And this is all happening while there is still conflict from the curse in his home. Granted, there are some psalms in which David is obviously having a hard time with life. And there is a span of time that this curse and correction is more pronounced than others. But do you remember the imprecatory psalms? Those psalms where David's struggling with some unknown or unnamed adversaries, quite possibly within his own court or family. And he's calling fire down from heaven on them like the sons of thunder in the Gospels. But for the most part, the psalms highlight what David is learning in his relationship with God amid the wreckage of his life. And God not only responds well, something beautiful happens. Remember a moment ago when I mentioned that you should keep reading the book to find the proper interpretation or understanding? What if you didn't even know that there were questions that needed to be asked and passages that needed to be understood on a deeper level? I have no idea how many times I've read the Psalms that have prophetic implications and just drove right past them. Several books in the New Testament refer to David's prophetic Psalms, but when you get to the book of Hebrews especially, you find that the writer highlights many prophecies in the book of Psalms that point to the priestly nature of Christ. Several of these prophecies are Psalms of David and came after the curse or the consequence or the correction of 2 Samuel 12. Latch on to this and hold tightly to it. Prophetic words confirming Christ and the purpose of his ministry came from an adulterous murderer after the sin and while he was wrestling with the wreckage of that sin. This is a terrible balance to try to achieve. On the one hand, the consequences are brutal, but God doesn't abandon David. God doesn't kick him to the curb. No, the goal of the curse and the consequence is to bring correction. And then he walks with David right through the middle of the mess. So what does this mean to you and me? It means that amid the wreckage of our lives, God is not only close to comfort, guide, protect, and correct. He's also able to use you for kingdom purposes after and while dealing with the wreckage of your past. And with that, and in the spirit of the 15-minute podcast or less, let's take a brief break. And if you want to press pause and come back at a later time to finish out part two of this episode, feel free to do so. Or as always, please feel free to plow right on through. I would also take a minute to say thank you for your support, your ratings, your reviews, your shares. It's much appreciated. It's hard to believe that we're coming up on the one-year anniversary and the response to the podcast has been amazing. I'm looking forward to some new additions to the podcast in Season 2. 
one of which is that I've been working on getting the podcast up on YouTube and have my trusty 13-year-old assistant working on that. I've always said, if you don't understand technology, ask a 13-year-old. This YouTube project is evidence of that. Granted, YouTube may not be beneficial to you, but there's a group of people who get their podcasts there, and we look forward to extending the reach of this podcast. Again, thank you for your support. Lastly, before we get back to the second part of this episode, in the event that you want to share any episodes with friends or family members, but they don't subscribe to your particular platform, check out somethingtognawon.com. All episodes are posted there and are easily accessible uh, to listen to without having to register or create an account. And if you haven't taken the time to rate the podcast, write a review, or share an episode, please take a moment to do so. It really helps the podcast exposure, and it is much appreciated. Okay, back to surviving and thriving amid the wreckage. While this glimpse into David's life is a lifeline to those who have made an absolute mess of their lives, this is a tough pill for the people in the peanut gallery to swallow, especially when they're watching the Davids of this life who've offended them walk through this process. It doesn't seem fair to them that God would use a David when the Davids have made the mistakes they've made or when the Davids have brought the curse or consequence upon their family. And it's an extraordinarily painful disposition to be in. Let me put it this way. To those offended, grace and mercy are not fair. And they would be right. In a worldly sense, it's not fair that God would use a person who has offended you to minister to millions. And in addition to the writer of Hebrews, John and Luke record Jesus quoting David, notwithstanding the fact that Jesus chose to come from David's line. Would it seem unfair to you that someone who hurt you so deeply would be used so effectively by God? Think about Tamar. David authorized her meeting with Amnon. He set up the situation that led to her rape. And then he did nothing about it. How did she feel about David? It's recorded in the book so you know that the family members knew about it. How secure and protected and loved would they have felt? And then, after Absalom, the son of a Gentile mother, by the way, after Absalom murders Amnon, David seems to mourn over the loss of the relationship with Amnon more than he does the loss of Amnon's life. What does that speak to the family? In all of these situations, how do they see the leader of their nation? How do they see their father? How do they see this deeply spiritual and devout minister? Do they perceive him as a hypocrite? I would submit to you that amid the curse and consequence, David experienced God's grace and mercy. And in experiencing God's grace and mercy, God uses him in profound ways. I cannot fathom the tension in the spirit and mind of a man leading a nation and ministering through the Psalms all the while knowing that his actions had created such wreckage in his own family. 2 Samuel 17 highlights one other casualty of this sin. And let me run through it real quick to illustrate how broad the impact of David's sin ran through the family, including the extended family. When David had inquired as to who Bathsheba was, 
She was referred to as the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. It's in 2 Samuel 11. So David knows two things here at a minimum. First, he's messing with a woman who is well-connected with two of the nation's finest fighting men, and dare I say, comparatively speaking, two Navy SEALs. Not smart. Secondly, look at the list of David's mighty men in 2 Samuel 23, 34. The list runs through several names, and when we get to verse 34, we have, quote, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite, end quote. So hang on to that little nugget. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. There is nothing more written about Eliam, but there are some unfortunate references to Ahithophel. Look at 2 Samuel 16, 23, quote, And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at an oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and Absalom, end quote. Ahithophel was a counselor to David. Can you imagine the tension in that relationship? Ahithophel is to counsel wisely the man who had his son-in-law murdered, who ruined his granddaughter's life. How's that going to play out? Well, I'm glad you asked. When Absalom stages his coup, Ahithophel is right there in the mix, and he throws his support behind Absalom. In fact, he's the one who advises Absalom to violate David's concubines publicly, thus fulfilling that part of the curse. Ahithophel faced the same dilemma that every other family member did, and honestly, it's likely a struggle most of us humans deal with at some point in time. How do you submit or serve or honor someone who has violated you or someone you care about? How do you handle that? How did Ahithophel handle that? Well, he chose poorly, quite honestly. When he throws his support behind Absalom and his bitterness, his anger, or dare I say hatred of David comes shining through when you get to 2 Samuel 17, and he blatantly begs to hunt down David and kill him. And when his counsel to do so is not honored, he takes his own life. And the bodies start stacking up like a Clinton conspiracy. Okay, that's bad joke and all, but, but still, the wreckage is still wreckage. Ahithophel's suicide is a domino. It's one of many dominoes that fall. And David's actions are the first one to fall. It's the predicating event of the whole mess. So here's a question. What does that do to Bathsheba? And how does that affect David's marriage to her? The exact answer to that, and a lot of these questions are quite honestly lost to history, but at the very least, I doubt it was remotely close to positive. So what does all this mean? And how does it relate to David's dealing with his family, especially his children? To those whose social justice sensibilities are offended that a man with such a checkered past would not only be allowed by God to remain king, but to be used by God in such a mighty way, those people might see grace and mercy as an unfair gift. And unfortunately, the poster children for such an unhealthy disposition are Ahithophel and Absalom, and everyone who throws their support behind their conspiracy. Their bitterness gets the best of them. They take fairness into their own hands, and it fails miserably. Their pursuit of justice is a disguise that agitates the wound and fosters bitterness. 
Jesus taught us to make amends in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. And it would appear that at the end of 2 Samuel 14 that David made an attempt to do so. But the reality is that Absalom has to receive it. And dare I say, Absalom has to forgive his dad for setting up the meeting between his sister and Amnon. And the fact that he didn't do anything to bring justice to Tamar. And in the very next verse, Absalom begins taking steps that will lead to the coup. For us, this is what I call a reverse illustration. That is to say, this illustrates why we don't want to do what Absalom and Ahithophel did, namely, harboring bitterness towards those who hurt us and those around us. So practically today, let me be blunt and ask this question. Who do you need to forgive? What bitterness do you need to unload? At the same time, I wrestle with another question. How many people are out there who have offended someone, or many people, like David did, and they've been hamstrung by the guilt of their sin? And by that I mean, how many people feel a call to ministry, or to simply minister, or to simply be God's hand extended to the world, but fail to act because of the guilt and the shame of how they've treated someone in the past, and the devil is playing them like a fiddle, keeping them from God's intended purpose for their lives? May I humbly suggest to you that you seek to make amends like Jesus said in Matthew 23 and 24, and apply the same principle to your situation. I wish I could offer you an objective five-step program for moving from shame and being paralyzed to act to being set free to act. I would submit that there are some steps to take that are probably a bit subjective and would probably vary in time from situation to situation, but nonetheless, when someone responds like David did to the correction of the prophet Nathan. And I would add here that this would include submitting to the authorities that you're under, if that's applicable. And in the Old Testament, there was a system of checks and balances in which the king was to be submissive to the prophet in spiritual matters. Think of how Saul did or did not submit to Samuel's role in the governance of Israel. And when they turn to the Lord amid the curse and the consequences, and when they attempt to make amends, you see God begin to use them again, despite the disposition of those who have been hurt. Now, as harsh as this is going to sound, that is now their cross to bear, their wound that God longs to step in and heal, their opportunity to see how God works. And there comes a time when you have to get out of the way and let God ply his healing trade in the lives of those you've hurt. So often we want to focus on the one who's been hurt, and I don't want to sweep that under the rug at all. I hope you all understand that I'm not minimizing that whatsoever. Our culture plays to the victim. But what I want to leave us to gnaw on today is a simple question of, who have you hurt? Do you need to make amends? And most specifically, are you being held hostage by the hurt that you have brought on other people? If you're one of those who's caught in that tension of sensing a call or a divine expectation to minister, not necessarily in full-time church work, but simply to do the work of ministry, the act of being a witness for Jesus Christ, but you're held in check by your past, look at David. Look at the fruit of his bloodline 
Look at the impact of his writings. Call it his journal, if you will. Look at the millions that he's impacted. God can still use you. God still wants to use you. God wants to set you free from the lie that your past inhibits you from effectiveness in the present and the future. Are you willing to take the same steps that David did and at the same time begin to ask God, where do you want me? And how can I be positively effective for your kingdom? This has been something to gnaw on. And the goal of the podcast is to have listeners come to know God in a deeply personal and experiential way. To do that, I hope that you'll dig into the scriptures in this story further and gnaw on both its deep truths and its applications in your life. You can find the references in the transcript. Until next week, God bless.